All right, I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses of chapter 24 in Luke. Luke 24, 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself, what had happened. Well, that account that um, Kelsey just read was truly uh, the moment that history changed and pivoted where real hope, true hope emerged. Uh, It's kind of funny when you pray for stuff um, and then you're the one that starts to break down crying during the song and then you realize I've got to stand up and talk in front of people in just a minute. So... um, God was good, uh, even to me this morning. Um, But because death was defeated that morning, it means that that nothing is impossible with God. And we've been uh, on this uh, sermon series today. We're going to kind of be wrapping up the series that we've been doing as as Easter morning uh, comes upon us. And we've been doing this series called, If You Love Me. And we've been exploring a statement that Jesus made in John 14, 15 that says this, if you love me, keep my commands. And so it's been a conversation about what it means to live a life of obedience to God and ultimately what so often hinders us from being the people that we want to be. So a major takeaway for me um, during this sermon series is, um, is, is taking a look at this idea that obeying God's commands really boils down to just being like Jesus, just being like him. Here's what I mean. If you were to take a look at the number of commands in the Bible and write them down one by one, you would find that there are roughly 613 Old Testament Testament commands and 1,050 New Testament commands, okay? Almost 1,700 commands. That's a lot of rules. And if you're like me, you're looking at it and you're thinking, no way. Some of you guys are teachers and you have like three classroom rules that get broken every single day, right? Multiple times a day. So 1,700 is like, eh. So to consider trying to obey all of those for us, that's overwhelming and discouraging and honestly just unattainable. And that's why every person here needed Jesus to come and save them. It was an impossible task for us finite humans in our limited strength, our limited wisdom, our limited self-control to ever attain. We needed a savior. But instead of focusing on all of those commands, what if our mindset 
and our prayers centered around, God, just help me be more like Jesus. Help me be more like him. That seems a lot more compelling because Jesus is what drew us in to begin with, right? So I just want to be more like what I was attracted to. And what is Jesus like? Well, he's like a lot of things, right? He's loving and kind and generous and powerful and patient and joyful and hopeful. And oh yeah, obedient, right? Last week, Justin did a great job of kind of walking us through um, and showing us how from the cradle to the grave, Jesus was continually obedient. His life was marked by obedience. He was obedient first and foremost to his heavenly father, but he was also obedient to his earthly father. He was obedient to the Jewish customs um, that he was a part of and grew up in. And he was even obedient to Rome, right? To, to the government, paying the taxes when he was supposed to, just like everybody else. And his journey of obedience all culminated in this one great challenge, his greatest challenge. So we need to rewind the tape from Sunday in the passage we just read in Luke 24 back to Thursday night. And Thursday night, if you remember, is the time that Jesus is getting together with his disciples for the Last Supper. He knows it's almost the end, even though they're not as aware as he is. But after dinner, Jesus gets up and he walks with his disciples up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he begins to, to pray. And he's praying there. He knows he's going to be arrested in just a few minutes. And he's in agony, considering the pain and the brutal death that he knows is about to come upon him in just the next 24 hours. So I want you to open your Bibles to Mark 14. It's page 1450. Mark 14, starting in verse 32. <clears throat> It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, guys, even for Jesus, obedience is painful. One of the points that I made early on in this series is this truth, that often um, the call to obedience comes in direct opposition with our desire for comfort, right? Obedience is usually on a collision course with our desire for comfort. That was brutally true for Jesus. In Philippians 2, when Paul said that we are to imitate Christ Jesus, it included this. Philippians 2, 8 says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. So why does Paul say even death on a cross? Well, because it was considered the most shameful way to die in the Roman Empire. 
Taylor did a great job of talking to our kids about this yesterday, right? Roman citizens, if you were a citizen of Rome, you weren't even allowed to be uh, put to this, this type of death, this form of execution. It was public, so they would strip them down. They would usually put them on a, a main street or up on a hill where everybody would see it. It was gruesome and it was cruel. There was even a law about this form of death way back in, in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this event. Deuteronomy 21, 23, or 22 through 23 says this. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. These two quotes uh, I came across this week, I think, give us some, some insight into Christ's sacrifice. I want to share those with you. You can go to that next slide. There we go. A.T. Robertson called the death on the cross the bottom rung in the ladder from the throne of God. Jesus came all the way down to the most despised death of all, a condemned criminal on the accursed cross. And then Charles Spurgeon said this, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. Why was Jesus willing to obey God's plan and subject himself to such humiliation? If you can imagine as the creator of the world, you have these created beings that you're allowing to mutilate you. Hebrews 12.2 says it best. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So just real quickly, what was the joy set before Jesus as he hung on the cross that day? Yeah. The promise of Sunday. Okay. Yeah, he knew the Sunday uh, that was there. Yeah, what else? And Sunday was going to mean what for us, right? So he knew he was going to conquer death. What did he know that was going to mean for us, you and I? Our salvation. Our salvation. What else? Yes. It would bring glory to the Father. Absolutely. Unity amongst people, yeah. I was talking with, with uh, Matt Robertson about this yesterday. You know, we always talk about like on the cross that Jesus conquered death. But I was like, man, that's true, but it, it's really limited because really to feel the impact of it, you have to start breaking it down into its individual parts. So when you say that he conquered death and then you start thinking about, well, what, what all encompasses death? right? Fear, uh, freedom, you know, slavery, um, shame. You start, you start talking about the, well, what all comprises when we feel like a piece of death, like in our life, right? When you get use that phrase, like it felt like death to me. What felt like death to you? And you start thinking about the specific things that Jesus's sacrifice took care of 
for us. And, the, and Jesus' delight was in thinking that my children are never going to have to experience these things. Again, they can be free. They can be without shame. It was all about how we would benefit from his sacrifice. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you guys to listen to me now. There is no resurrection without a death. There's no resurrection without a death. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for each one of us. So many of us want resurrection Sunday in our life, but we don't want crucifixion Friday. We all want resurrection Sunday, but we don't want crucifixion Friday. Our lives, our stories cannot be resurrected until we are willing to be obedient unto death, just like Christ. We have to surrender our will for his, and Paul explains this process really clearly in Galatians 2.20 when he wrote this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with him, and I no longer live. You see, when we surrender our life to God, our old life is dead and buried, and we are raised as new creations in Christ. We are spiritually born again. And the resurrection raised to life, what we desire most, comes through death and obedience, the thing we fear most and try to avoid. I want you to hear this again, okay? The resurrection, things in our life being resurrected is what we all desire most, right? And the way that that comes is through death, the thing we fear the most and avoid. What we want the most comes by way of the thing that we fear the most and avoid the most. Okay, so it's this beautiful paradox that we have to come to terms with. And as Jesus' followers, we are a people of the resurrection. That's our true identity. And we can kind of get that on the macro level, kind of big picture, right? Okay, we can think, to be saved, I have to lay down my life. I have to die to my old way of living in order for God to resurrect something new in me. I can track with that. Okay, that makes sense up here in my head. <laughs> And a lot of us have taken hold of that offer. We, we've heard that story and we're like, yes, I want that. But it's in the day-to-day -day realities of our lives where things start to get a little bit messy. So see if you can relate to this. Most of us want to be better. We want to be better friends, better children, better parents better leaders, better spouses, better employees, better students, better athletes. We all want to be better at something, but we also want it to cost us as little as possible. Right? I want to be a better dad, but I don't want to have to change much. But remember, in order for there to be a resurrection, Something has to die. Being better at all our various roles in life demands obedience unto death. Whatever is keeping us from being a better dad, mom, child, spouse has to die. It might mean death to our pride, 
It could be death to apathy or indifference, death to comparison, death to control, death to fairness, death to manipulation, or death to low self-worth or a victim mentality. This is going to be true confessions time for Pastor Bob, okay? And then it'll be your turn. I spent a lot of years of my marriage trying to make or at least wishing that Kristen would just be more like me. Okay? That was my hope. Because then I wouldn't have to confront my sin and change. So the burden would just be on her. Now, most of you guys that know her are thinking, that's ridiculous. You should have been hoping to be like her. She's the better one. Okay? Which is true. Just shows you how lost I was. Okay? I've also wanted to be a great dad. Right? A lot of you guys know my story. Didn't really have a dad in my life. So for me, man, be, getting to be a dad has been like this huge blessing to me and something I was super excited about. But I often wanted to define, so I wanted to be a great dad, but I wanted to define what it looked like. Okay? Basically, I would just do the things that came naturally to me so that I didn't have to change much. And so it really wasn't that big of a deal for me to show up to my kids' things, to coach my kids' teams, to get out and play with them and throw the ball around and play with the Barbie house or whatever I needed to do, spend time with them. Those were all good things. But I never really asked my kids, what do you need from me? What do you need from me? You see, what my kids are now able to express <laughs> as now that they're adults is that while all those things that I did for them were great and they appreciated that, that there, are, there were times when what they really needed from me was a deeper emotional connection. What they wish they would have had from me at different times in their life was a deeper emotional connection. <laughs> the very thing that I was least skilled at, least competent in, <laughs> is what they needed most sometimes. But guess what? Growing in that area requires me to die. Requires, first of all, to, for me to die to this, this thought I have in my head that I'm a great dad and all the things that I'm doing are awesome and they should appreciate that, right? Which at some level they should, but I had to admit that I had room to grow. I had to admit that healing needed to be done in my life so that I could enter into their emotional spaces, spaces in ways that made them feel loved and known and seen and valued. The same could probably be said for my marriage as well. I, I did a lot of the, the good things to try to be a good husband, but there were probably times when my wife was like, I really need you emotionally right now. I needed to be obedient to God's commands and love in ways that weren't natural or comfortable for me. And I often resisted that. Is there something in your life right now that needs a resurrection? Maybe it's a relationship, a perspective that you have on life or your circumstances. Maybe it's your walk with God. 
What's the hindrance? Where are you stuck? Can you identify the sinful, broken pattern or perspective that's keeping you from obeying? Can you identify it? What needs to die in you so that something more beautiful can be resurrected? What needs to die in you so that something more beautiful can be resurrected? Anybody willing to say that out loud? I know this is what needs to die in me for whatever that is that I know that needs to be resurrected to happen. Anyone willing to share? Yeah. Pride. Okay. Pretty common one for a lot of us. Yes. I'm sorry, what? Apathy. Okay. Sometimes we just get indifferent about the way things are. What else? Yeah. Your desire to please people. Okay. A lot of us want to be liked. <laughs> That becomes a hindrance, yeah. Control. Control. Good. Now we're getting somewhere, people. We're warming up. Yeah. Yeah, Kill. Being discontent. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Stubbornness. Okay. Good. Well, not good, but, you know, good. I want you guys to turn your Bibles to John chapter 12 real quick. Page 1532. <clears throat> what we just did there was, was what I kind of call like boots on the ground faith, like practical theology. Okay, we talk about these big terms like death and resurrection, but then we start to boil them down to your life, right? And the places of death in your life, you've been redeemed, right? Jesus has resurrected your story. And you could be living in abundance, in health, if you take hold of those things and bring those things we just all express, which all of us deal with, pride, control, apathy, all that stuff, surrender it to him to say, God, I know this is a hindrance to what you're trying to do in my life right now. You're trying to resurrect something here, and I'm not willing to bring this thing to the altar to, to kill it so that you can resurrect something. That's who he is and what he does. Here's another thing that we're going to take a look at in John chapter 12, a story Jesus told starting in verse 23. It's a section where Jesus is telling his disciples for the first time that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. 
So in this story, we see another kingdom principle at work, right? Yes, there is this kingdom principle of death and resurrection, okay? That's a natural theme. But there's also this God-ordained desire for multiplication. It's all over Scripture. God's desire is to multiply things. One act of humility and death of our fleshly desire to be right, to be comfortable, to be liked in the hands of a mighty God leads to multiplying impact. Take a look at what Paul wrote in Romans 5.19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. One action, multiplying impact. When we obey out of love for Christ and all that he has done for us by surrendering his life on the cross, not only do, do we flourish and, and the dead things get resurrected in our life, but those around us flourish as well. Everyone benefits when we become more like Jesus. Everyone benefits when we become more like Jesus. Guys, there is so much at stake here. So much potential for good when we humbly obey. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10 said it this way. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, talking about when he took on all the, the weight of our sin and was separated from God for a moment. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Guys, this whole Christianity thing is so much more powerful and so much bigger than just your personal journey with God. When we obey unto death, God takes that seed of obedience and he multiplies it. And what grows up are many plants, many sons and daughters who are brought to glory by our faith. Romans 8.11 reminds us that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in us. We have the power to face the issues that keep us from dying sometimes so that God can do what he longs to do, which is resurrect dead things, to multiply one act of obedience so that many will be brought to glory, so that he will be glorified. That's what he longs to do more than anything. Do we know that power? Remember in the beginning of this series, we acknowledged that all of us are gonna fail on this obedience journey. God knows that. He knows that we're not perfect. And so he said it's really more about our desire. It can't be about our performance because we know we can't follow 1,700 rules, right? So it's got to be more focused on our desire. Do we desire to obey out of our love for all that he's done for us? Is that the core desire, the ruling desire of our hearts? I love Paul's passionate prayer in Philippians 3.10 because it gives us insight into his desire I'm just going to leave this up on the screen and just let you read it and just meditate on it for a moment. 
the last few weeks, we've kind of talked about, uh, you know, if I asked this audience, right, the church, do you love God, right? Jesus starts out, if you love me. And I said that most of us would throw up our hands pretty enthusiastically. In the same way, if I asked, do you want to know Christ? Most of us would be like, yeah, I want to know him. Absolutely. What Paul does, though, is that he drills down. He says, here's what it is to know Christ. One, it's to know the power of his resurrection. I'm following you so far, buddy. Sounds good, right? And then he says, oh, but it's also to, to share in his sufferings. Now you're losing me a little bit here, buddy. You know, can you throw in your free uh, car washes for me or something to sweeten the deal up? It's getting a little heavy. And he says, oh, no, it's not just that. It's becoming like him in his death. That's what it means to know Christ. We are a resurrection people. (laughs) Before we move on, let me just get some thoughts. I just want some thoughts on that verse as it relates to Easter or to the sermon series that we've been taking a look at. As you guys see by Paul's prayer there, what stands out to you as it relates to Easter, as it relates to the series that we've just finished on obedience? Anything I missed? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the fellowship of sharing in the sufferings, right? That, that fellowship implies community, that we're doing that together. And so I think a lot of times what happens is when we isolate ourselves from community in our mind and we think, oh man, I've got to suffer for Jesus, right? Which is a poor perspective anyways, but um, because life is just suffering, okay? So it's not like something else has to happen in this world for you to suffer. This world is suffering, I right, just turn on the news for a day. Suffering, 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 suffering. Next day, wake up, same thing. Suffering, suffering, suffering. Okay? But, so the idea is not whether you'll suffer or not. The crux is will you do it alone? Or will you do it in community with other people who will encourage you? Right? Because one day this guy's suffering, but this guy's doing all right. He's handling the suffering okay. So he's the encouragement for this guy. He bears this guy's burdens. Right? Another time, this guy's suffering. Russ over here is doing a pretty good job. They're, they're helping one another out. So we do it in community, fellowship, sharing. Yes, good. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah. I think it's also that the fellowship of with, being with him is he's with us no matter what suffering we're going through. Yes. And when it feels like we're at our lowest or most low, and that's when he's with us the most. Yeah, it's the fellowship not only of, of one another, but the fellowship with Christ, right? Christ is in us. And he's sharing in our sufferings with us. He's partnering with us in that. Yes, good. Guys, we are a resurrection people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, marked by obedience, and multiplied to bring many to glory for his glory. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. So no matter how dead something feels in your life, There is hope in Christ. The only one who conquered death that we might truly live. And once we've encountered the cross and the empty tomb, 
and we've come to understand his immense love for us, our desire to love him and others and obey him will grow. Right? We've got to continue to lean into it. The story has to get from just up here to here. When it gets here and we feel it, the desire to obey is easy. Er. <laughs> right? And he'll meet us with whatever little faith that we have, and he will multiply it for his glory. When we start understanding this, we start living it, we start showing just little steps of obedience, he takes what little faith we have and what little obedience we have and he multiplies it so that many are blessed. And guys, that is humbling when you start to realize God is using you and your obedience and other people are flourishing because of it. That's a humbling thing. And then you come back to Jesus and you say, God, it's not me, man, it's you. But the reality is, is that I want more people to flourish. So help me to love better, obey better, so that more and more can come to know you. You've got to get out of our heads of the just us and God, right? At some level, if you want to boil it down to that, you can, but it's so much bigger than that. It's communal. And the power and the ripple effects of it are communal. We've got a world that needs to know him. Guys, we're going to take communion today. Um, and I always tell folks, when you're taking communion, there's really kind of two things that you're proclaiming. One is that you recognize that you had to have a body broken and a blood poured out for your healing, for your sin, for your forgiveness. And Christ did that on your behalf. So that's one thing that you're acknowledging as you participate. The second thing that you're acknowledging is a lot of what we've been talking about today is that to be like Christ means that we fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So we're basically saying as we participate, God, I want my life to be broken. I want my blood to be poured out for the benefit of others. And so if you can say that those are the desires of your heart, you're not saying you're perfect, that you don't get it right all the time, but your desire of your heart is to recognize those two things, then you're welcome to come forward and participate with us today. Um, folks in the balcony, we're going to have communion for you uh, out in the landing there, so you don't have to come down today because we're a little, little crowded, so we'll speed that process up a bit. But I want you to take some time um, to just reflect on whatever God has had for you so far in Easter. Our service isn't over yet, but um, the, the ushers will dismiss you here in a moment. You'll come forward. The service will be up here. You can tear the bread dip it in the cup, and then take and eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time today. Thank you for your obedience, even unto death, and specifically to death on a cross. God, we say a lot of times in our life that that felt like death. <laughs> and a lot of times when we're confronting things in our life, that are broken, it feels like death. It feels like death for me to be vulnerable and emotionally available to people. That feels like death to me. But in doing that and being obedient to that, I see that other people are living. I see depth of relationship because of my willingness to do that at times. And I want more of that. 
that makes me want more death because I see the beauty and the power of resurrection. So God, I pray that whatever has a grip on us, whatever we need to die to, that for the joy set before us of what could be, if we're willing to lay those things down, that we would be willing to do that today. Not only so that we could know you more so that we could be free, but for those around us that they would be able to be free as well. They would experience the fullness of relationship and healing and all the things you have for us when we step out in faith and trust you. God, we give you this time. We thank you for your sacrifice, for what this means for our life, and that in your resurrection, we have the power to live freely, knowing that you've got our eternity taken care of, that we can risk letting go. Hear our prayers right now.